0: Okay, so thank you all again for attending our second session on the Book of Ephesians. Bible Plus is it's just a space that we have opened here at the church uh, to study uh, the Bible, to study its message, to go deeper into uh, God's Word, uh, to get to know Scripture well. So we will be in doing that. We will be better trained to uh, talk about God and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, and even to you know, to uh, disciple other people. So, um, so today, I, I say to you, thank you. Thank you for coming today to this second session. And let's, uh, let's uh, open our hearts and open our minds to what the Holy Spirit wants to uh, speak to us. And uh, as we start, I, I encourage you to, uh, to share your opinions, to share your thoughts, to um, let's build each other up as we um, speak about God's Word. Last Sunday, we, uh, we just cover a brief introduction to the book of Ephesians. And we talk about how the book is divided. We know that the book of Ephesians is divided in two parts or in two sections. Going from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul uh, takes the, the time to lay out a foundation, a, the, a theological solid foundation for us to know how to live out our, our uh, Christian faith. And um, so he will speak from chapter one to chapter three uh, about the, the, the theme of, of the book, that is the reconciliation of all things in Christ and through Christ our Savior. And then in chapter four to six, he will, you know, speak about uh, how to live out that faith, how to live out those principles, how, you know, knowing that we all have a, the vocation of manifesting the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, how do we do that on a practical basis? How how do I live out the kingdom of God, or how do I live according to the kingdom of God standards within the realm of my family, in the you know in my relationship to others, maybe in the workplace or at home, or in, you know on a you know how do we impact this society? With the principles of God. With, with, with the message of the kingdom of God. So for that I will ask you to take a moment now. And imagine with me this story. Imagine that we here. We are first century Christians. Okay. You are in, a, in Asia Minor. You are living there. You have a trade. You are a tent maker. I don't know. But we are all brothers. We are all brothers in Christ. And now we are the church. So I will read to you this now. It is around 5 a.m. on a, on a Sunday morning. And it is almost dawn. We have come together to worship our Lord Jesus uh, at the risk of persecution and suffering. Since according to the government and according to society, there is only one Lord. And no, it's not this Jesus. It's Caesar. Ne- ne- nevertheless, our passion and love for the one who redeemed us weighed more than the pressure we get from the rulers of this world. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we meet in one of our church members' houses to worship God through hymns, spiritual songs, and prayers. We don't have a music director. We just sing to God. We also remember the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah by breaking bread as he commanded us to do that in remembrance of him. We seek to be encouraged as the Spirit uses us to bless and teach one another with a humble and loving heart. There's no, there's not one single preacher. We are all preachers. But we also come together to abide in the Word of God. We want to go deeper into our knowledge of the Lord Jesus through the apostles' teaching. Recently, Paul, one of the founders of our church here in Ephesus, who is currently in prison for the sake of the gospel, wrote a circular letter and sent us a copy through our beloved brother Tychicus. Today, in our worship gathering, he read the letter and encouraged us to keep praying for our brother Paul as he keeps proclaiming the mystery of the gospel to all the rulers and, and people in authority in his circle. Now listen, he did not ask us to pray for his freedom, but rather for boldness so he can continue manifesting the power and the final victory of the Messiah to all the people who are in darkness. Tychicus also encourages our hearts and exhorts us to follow Paul's example as we manifest together the victory of Jesus the Messiah to everyone around us. May the Lord help us to shine in these convoluted times and to have perseverance amid trials of all kinds. May the peace of God be with you. Now, if you would have been a Christian in the city of Ephesus and you would have been, you know, in that circle, as part of that circle, that church. You know, the church used to meet at early in the morning, 4 or 5 a.m. Picturing yourself in that setting, how will that shape the way you see Ephesians? How that will shape the way that you see now Paul's praying and speaking about God and the manifestation of power, the mystery of the gospel to all rulers and authority, even knowing that he was in prison when he said that, when he wrote that. It's just shocking, right? We come from a Western culture mindset and we feel so comfortable, right, in our settings. We have freedom to come and worship God. But in those times, they were being persecuted. Right now, persecution against Christians is... uh, it's a, it's a big thing in the world. Just recently, uh, I believe four brothers in Christ, they uh, were martyred in Nigeria in the hands of Boko Haram, this ex- uh, extremist Muslim group that persecuted Christians. So we see Christians suffering in the world. Now, how do you feel about that? Am I open to give it all to the Lord and to proclaim him as the only Lord, even when I have even at the risk of facing persecution. Persecution from society. Even persecution from your own family. So I just wanted to lay that out for you. So that could be our foundation today as we come to the text now in with a prayerful heart. So let's go now and and read Ephesians one. And before we do that, so open your Bible in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just following the ESV translation. It doesn't matter what translation you have, but I will be uh, using that one um, today. We need to know that Ephesians 1, is a prayer. And actually, it's not only on Ephesians 1 that Paul prays. You know, the Paul prayer um, goes far beyond chapter 1. Most scholars believe that chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's just a single prayer. So half of the book of Ephesians is a prayer. Now you need to remember that Ephesians was a circular letter. That means that it was open and it was read all loud um, in the midst of, you know, when Christians were, were gathering to worship God. It was like, um, you know, someone will open this letter and we'll read it all loud and everybody will be... Receiving those words as god's words, which is the same that we do when we come and listen to a preacher or our pastor deliver a sermon. we know that it's God speaking to our lives through his life right through the gifts that he've, that he've received now in the setting of the of the first century church, that was you know common that 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 is something that they, they seek every Sunday. To listen to God speak to them. Not only through the voice of one pastor, just like I read. But everybody have the, have the responsibility of bringing a hymn, a psalm, a spiritual song. And to encourage one another. So, the letter of Paul, Ephesians, probably was read all out in a gathering, in a, in a, in a, in a church service. Right? So, half of the letter is a prayer. Which speaks a lot about our Our own services, worship services. How much of our services do we actually spend in prayer? How much of our Christian life we spend in prayer? We are talking about Paul who was a man of prayer. You know, most people believe that Paul has spent several hours praying to God for his churches. For the churches that he was taking care of. Praying for others, you know, giving and praising God and offering thanksgiving for not only all his mercies and richness in Christ, but also for his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. So a personal question, how much time do you spend in prayer? How much time we as Christians, we together spend in prayer? We know that we have a tradition of having pre-service prayer. Okay, how many of us actually attend pre-service prayer? (laughs) When uh, the pastor will come and say, Well, this weekend is prayer and fasting uh, weekend. How many of us actually fast? When was the last time that, that we fasted? You know, can you remember? When was the last time that you spent a morning in prayer? Or you end your day, finish your day in prayer? So, Ephesians is a book about prayer. All Paul's letters except Galatians contain a prayer. So, for, for Paul... Praying was important. Prayer, uh, you know, a life of prayer was the main trait of a Christian, of a believer. So, social convention in that time dictated that letters should start with a greeting, and we see in Ephesians chapter one, verse one and two, that Paul starts with a greeting. Now, for Paul, the opening lines of his letters were also a crucial point to the rest of his writing. He didn't he didn't only want to say hi, greetings. Uh, may the Lord be with you, or any other kind of Christian greeting. He wanted to lay out a foundation for, for the rest of his uh, epistle. So, through his opening prayers, Paul was seeking, or was aiming to, A, express praise for God's work in Christ. And you will see that in Ephesians chapter 1. He will express praise and he will um, worship God for what he has done for us in Christ. That's what we call Doxology bringing doxa, glory to God, giving glory to him. Secondly, Paul wanted to give thanks to God or show gratefulness to the recipients of the letter. And Paul, in doing that, was modeling what, you know, what does it mean to have a humble heart? We're talking about Apostle Paul. So Paul here saying, I'm thankful to God for you. We, we see Paul, uh, you know, telling them, telling the, the brothers in Ephesus, that he was thankful and grateful before God because of their love and because of their uh, faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul saw then positive things. How many of us can see positive things, you know, on other people, on other Christians? We tend to have, you know, or to set our eyes on negative things, you know, things that need to change, the same with our churches. But we need to start following Paul's model of prayer. Before you pray for someone tried to think about a couple of positive things about that person. You know, in the case of Paul, for him was their faith and their love. And and thirdly, Paul offers prayers of intercession for the church. He didn't, he was in prison. He could have, you know, used his time just to pray for his present circumstances. To be released from prison. Who wants to be in prison, anyhow? No, he used the time to pray for others. To pray for his brothers in Asia Minor. Ephesians also introduces something unusual to Paul's letter: not not only a prayer of Thanksgiving, but also a blessing, a prayer of blessing, a benediction. And this lengthy sentence is similar in style. We we, we talk about this last Sunday, to uh, the Greek um, style of you know addressing uh, rulers and people in authority. You know with uh, words of praise, which in Greek is epinos, but also it's a it's a remnant of Jewish prayers. Every Jewish, every Jew in that time, and even in the, what we call early, early Judaism or temple Judaism, they will start the, their day by praising God, and they will close their day by praising God. If you would have met uh, a real traditional spiritual uh, Jewish in, 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 in individual or person, you will see that 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 man or, or that woman will take, you know, every every situation, every every time, as an opportunity to praise God. They will praise God for their meals. They will praise God for their jobs. They will praise God for everything, even for going to the bathroom. Yeah, it's true. So for for Jews. Praising God was a key part, was an, a critical part of their daily life of prayer, and in the book of Psalms you will see that each section in the book of Psalms closes with a, a, a prayer to God, praising God for all His blessings. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul. Right? We know those words from Paul, from David. Sorry, it's that um, intention of the heart. It's the affection of the heart of those who love God to praise Him at all times. So Paul is doing the same thing here, but for for doing that, he's using even Greek style to address uh, the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus. As discussed last Sunday, Paul's exordium, or his introduction in chapter 1, is also a reminiscence of the orations of praise that were commonly used to give praise to gods or humans, and it's amazing because... In the midst of all these persecutions and trials because of, you know, there was a lot of controversy around who, who to praise. The Caesar of, of Jesus. Paul is using the same words that the pagans will use to praise Caesar. But he's redeeming those, those words. And now he's using those words to praise Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The real Caesar. The only Lord of lords. Now, in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we see... Uh, the principal theme of the letter 2 in verse 10, the reconciliation, the gathering of all things in Jesus the Messiah. So, e- Ephesians chapter 1 is magnificent for several reasons. Not only for the, unique, for, for the unique compound of Greek style with early Judaism prayer language, but also because the passage presents three elements of prayer that have been described uh, in other uh, letters of Paul. A, a benediction of, or blessing. B, a thanksgiving. And C, an in, um, a, a prayer of intercession on behalf of others. And those three elements should be present in our prayers too. When we pray, we should take time to praise God. Don't jump straight into re- you know, requests. I have this. I need this. I, I want that. Praise Him. You know, we tend to believe that praise and worship is music. And praise and worship is not music. Praise and worship is prayer. We, we, of course, we, through praise and worship, we will also praise God. But it's not only about music. It's about the affections of your heart. When you put your affections on God and you praise Him for who He is. And for what He has done for you. Just praise Him. And we see... Paul doing that. Also, thanksgiving. Take time to, to say, God, thank you. And thank God not only for what he have done in you, in your life and what he has given you, but also what is he doing in the lives of other believers. Just like Paul did. It's not only about us. It's not only about me. <laughs> it's about the body. It's about the body of Christ. It's about the church. It's about God's kingdom on earth. What he's doing here and in other places around the world. And finally, when we pray, let's pray for one another. Take time to pray for those who are sick, for those who are suffering, for those who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Take time to pray for them. That's the most significant thing that you can do for someone today. Pray for someone. Pray for someone in need. So without a doubt, Ephesians 1 was written as a prayer. Now the question is, where does that prayer end? Does it end verse 23? I hardly think so. I believe that Paul's prayer ends in chapter 3, actually, around verse 20 or 21. Because it's, it's a long uh, flow, you know, of different arguments that Paul presents in this context, in this style of prayer. Okay, we're good so far? Yes? All right. Anything that you, will add that, that you would like to add to that? Or we should just jump now into the text. All right, let's go now to verse 1 and verse 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ESV version. So Ephesians 1 we could divide Ephesians 1 in four, in four parts. Part A, Paul giving or offering greetings and, in, and a brief introduction in verse 1 and 2. Then Paul um, praising God for spiritual blessings in Christ, verse 3 to 14. Then Paul offering a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 15 and 16. And then Paul offering a prayer of intercession to receive revelation in verses 17 to 23. Now, in verse, verses 1 and 2, the, Paul starts his, his letters by saying that, by, or by identifying himself as the author of the letter. And we have discussed last Sunday that there is a lot of uh, disputes going on about the authorship of the letter, if it was actually Paul who wrote it, because of some difference in style. Now, here Paul is saying, it is me. I wrote the letter. So, Paul, number one, Paul, Identified himself as the writer or the author of the letter to the Ephesians. Now, it's interesting because Paul always intended that his letters will be personal. He had no issues opening his heart to his readers. In a way, he was showing his vulnerability. We, we read, for example, in some of his letters that he will speak, frankly, about his shameful past as a persecutor of the church in the book of Galatians chapter 1, for example. He also showed himself vulnerable by speaking about his sufferings and trials uh, in his letters to the, to the church in Corinth. Also, about, he spoke about his health issues, his health problems in Second Corinthians when he talked about the, the, the thorn in his flesh, remember that in second Corinthians chapter twelve, he also spoke about his feelings of inferiority when comparing his ministry to that of the so-called quote, "great apostles." You can read that also in second Corinthians chapter eleven you know Paul he knew about his weakness and uh, and he even um, will accept the fact that he was not a great uh, Dotated men uh, when uh, the time to speak in public you know, will, will, will rise he was great writing but he will say my words I know my words are weak and some of you believe that I'm not a apostle because I don't have the, uh, the skills to speak in public but when I write to you I'm strong so Paul knew all that and he spoke about his weakness and his, uh, um, his limits to his churches he was a real man you know, he showed himself as as he was. Even at the twilight of his life, Paul opened his heart to his spiritual son uh, Timothy by confessing to him that he felt deserted, deserted by everyone, by God, but God. And he talked about that in Second Timothy chapter 1, 15, and four nine to sixteen. Everyone have you know left me alone. He he spoke about his feelings of loneliness. That's interesting, eh? Talking about a great leader like Paul saying, I feel alone. And we Christians, sometimes we also feel the same. You know, I can tell you from my own life, sometimes I have felt alone. You know, especially landing in another country, I have to learn another language. You know, a foreigner in other land. I felt alone. for The first three months, they were terrible. So I can identify myself with Paul. He opened his heart Now, how willing you are, how willing are you to open your heart to others and say, "This is what is going on in my in my heart, in my life." Of course, we will not be doing that, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, on social media. We need to guard our hearts, but we all need someone to talk to, and that's that's why we are part of the church. Because there, there, there will be someone that will be there for you, to talk to you, to listen to you, to listen to your struggles, and to pray with you. Paul knew that, and that's why he even relied on someone younger than him, Timothy. Because in the church, there's no divisions. There's no division of age. There's no division of social background or, or social class. As Paul will say, we are God's, we are Jesus' body, the body of Christ. So here we see Paul speaking about himself, and he calls himself an apostle, right? So he, um, he's showing his uh, equality to the rest of the twelve apostles. Now, to be an apostle in those days, you needed two things. Number one, you needed to be um, called by Jesus Christ himself, so because Jesus is the one who prayed, and after prayer, he went and chose his disciples. In John fifteen, his. Fifteen six, I think it is. Uh, he says, "I haven't. You didn't. You did not choose me. I chose you." So it is Jesus who elects and uh, chooses his apostles, and that's what he did in the gospel narratives. Now, how Paul ended up being an apostle? Acts chapter nine speaks about Paul's experience, right, on the road to Damascus. Suddenly, the risen Christ manifested himself to him. He saw his glory. And he, was, and he received the words from Jesus himself saying, I want you to be an instrument in my hands. I will take you. You will be in front of rulers and authorities. I will send you to the nations to preach this word, the word of the gospel. So Paul uh, met both, re- both requirements. He was called by Jesus and he met the risen Christ. And that dusty road to the city of Damascus when he was still a persecutor. That's amazing because from being a persecutor, he ended up being a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's Paul. And the word apostle uh, over there it comes from the Greek apostolos, which means messenger. So the, the duty of an apostle is, or the function of an apostle is, to present the message of the gospel. And to be an ambassador of the gospel. Now, then he says um, that his apostleship was by the will of God. Or came to him by the will of God. Even though he was not well recognized among the apostles. And you see Paul having to flee to the desert in Galatians. Chapter 1, he speaks about that. He was not well received by the rest of the apostles because of fear. Of course, he was the great persecutor of the church. Now he is one of us. But God worked in his heart, worked on him, worked in his character, and gave him the insight that he needed to, to, after experiencing all that, to bring the message of reconciliation and unity that he will uh, express in all his letters. Ephesians being one of them. That we are all one. One body in Christ. How many years was it from his conversion until he actually connected with the apostles? Like, he met them. But yeah. Like, there was lots of years in between. There yeah, definitely. There, uh, we are, we're talking about at least 14, 14 years that he's been in the desert. Those are the silent years of Paul. We don't know much about them. So, right after his conversion, he's directed to a church in Damascus. Damascus where... Uh, a brother in Christ named uh, Ananias will pray for him, and Paul will receive the Holy Spirit right there. And then after that, we see Paul trying to connect to the, to the apostles in Jerusalem, but that seems like didn't work out. There was a lot of tension going on. So he, he flees, as he describes in, in the book of Galatians, to uh, the desert. And he spent many years there. So then in, in his epistles, he will say that during that time, he had, he had revelations and he had visions. And he even talks about being transported into heaven, into the third heaven. Uh, so all those experiences, all those mystical experiences, we can, if, if we can call them that, happened during that time. Also, you need to remember that he was being persecuted. Not only, um, oh, or he, he, he was not like, by the church, but at the same time, he was now being persecuted by his fellows, uh, you know, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish and Pharisees. He was part of that. He was part of the San- Sanhedrin, right? The high level in, uh, in early Judaism. And now he was persecuted by his fellow men. Um, so during that time, God was his refuge. And from that, from all that life experience now, we see Paul writing to Ephesians and saying, Well, I, I'm, I'm still suffering uh, for the cause or for the sake of the gospel. It takes time for people to prove themselves. We have to take time to improve ourselves, we have to take time to learn. But so often we're so excited something became Christian that we couldn't make mm-hmm. it being hey, you know, like a youth leader or you know whatever right. often and yeah. just instead sort of mentoring or just taking the time what you like to do that 14 yeah. years is a long time to be yourself mm-hmm hmm you know? definitely God needed to shape his heart God needed to humble him Uh and he did that through sufferings even humble and also has to I mean exactly are you sure you're not a spy <laughs> exactly. yeah yeah so uh, it's it's also interesting that paul speaks about his ministry as given by the will of god right not the will of men it was jesus himself to that presented to him and gave him the call to go and be an apostle a messenger of the gospel to all the to all the nations so, and then he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And we know that that part in Ephesus, it doesn't shows in many early manuscripts. So, it's actually not there. That's why we believe it's, this is a circular letter. It, there's just a gap. So, in the original Greek, we would say, to the saints who are, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. But something interesting is that even though it says in Ephesus, and let's... Take that for, for, the, for the sake of the argument. Yes, they were in Ephesus. Though. So that's the physical realm, right? The natural. Christians in Ephesus. But Paul, in verse 1, already introduces his idea of being in Christ and are faithful in Christ, the spiritual realm. 164 times, Paul will use the Greek term en Christo, which means in Christ or in Him. In whom? In all his 13 epistles or letters. Why for Paul was that so important? Well, because, because our true identity as Christian is not on this earth. You, you know, you, you, you could have been born in Canada or Middle East and, or South America. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we are all in one place. We are all in Christ and that just breaks down all the walls of division that we have been that we have tried to build in our in the history of our of the Christian church you know trying to build differences and you know between ourselves differences of race of social class whatever that doesn't matter at the end of the day we are one church there's no more there there's no dividing wall between us we are all in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And it's, now it's interesting too that Paul speaks about the saints, right? The saints, which is uh, Old Testament language because it was a term that was only used for Israel. Israel was called the Holy Nation, right? Israel was the Holy Nation because God decided to manifest His glory and power and authority over them. He decided to dwell in their midst. And we see that with the history or with the development of the tabernacle and the temple, right? God residing, dwelling in the midst of his people. Now, in the New Testament times, there are no temples, but actually there is one. There is a new temple. And that new temple is called the church. We are God's new temple, spiritual temple. And that's why Peter then will 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 we'll take this argument and will speak about us believers as living stones that God is using to build up His temple on earth, His new temple. We're now creation, you know, people who haven't met God, the Creator and the Benefactor and the Father of all, now they can come to church. They can come to the church, enter the new temple, which is the church, now the physical, the spiritual And now get to experience the freedom, the blessings and the love and the grace of this great God who gave it all for us, who gave his son. And now they can be also part of this holy people, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, which is the church. So, so here Paul speaks about the Holy Ones, which actually in Greek means the consecrated ones, the saints. Then he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. Now the word faithful in Greek is pistos. That could mean two things. Number one, to believe in something, to believe in Jesus. You are a believer. You have your faith in Him. But number two, faithful also, pistos, can mean or could mean to be trustworthy. So it is related to obedience. In my opinion, Paul is using um, that terminology because later in chapter 2, he will speak about the good works that God prepared beforehand for us so we can walk and do those good works. And then he will, in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he will speak about practical actions, how to live out that faith. So for me here, faithful uh, means to be trustworthy to be obedient to Christ, to what God has called you to do in life. Um, I will quote here from Newfield, Thomas Newfield. In his commentary, this is a fellow, a fellow Canadian scholar from Manitoba. He says, For Paul, the Jew, this was an act of great generosity, given that his audience was pre- predominantly, though not exclusively, Gentile. After all, the term holy ones carries with it connotations of a special status, but also of separation and difference. Two things, two key elements, separation and difference. In chapters 2 and 3, the writer celebrates the Gentiles' inclusion into the realm of holiness, the inclusion of those who once defined the limits of holiness by being outside its sphere. Those who were once outside the wall, outside the temple, Gentiles, Now make up the wall of the new Holy of Holies. The church. So now faithful can refer to that. So refers to being obedient and also holiness or to to the saints. The word there, saint, refers to be separated and to be different to, to the rest of the world. Jesus said that we are not even of this world. We are different. We have been uh, set apart for for God's purposes. In verse 1, like I mentioned before, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, in Jesus, something that he will use more than 20 times in Ephesians and 11 times in this paragraph uh, that goes from verse 3 to 14. 11 times he will say that we are in Christ, that our identity is in Christ the Lord. Um, Christians not only have faith in him, their life is in him. As the root in the soil, the branch in the vine, the fish in the sea, the bird in the air, so the place of the Christian, so the place of the Christian life is in Christ. Physically, his life is in the world. Spiritually, it is lifted above the world to be in Christ. So Paul's concept of the believer being in Christ has shaped also our doctrine of salvation, what we call soteriology, what we believe on salvation. We know that when we come to Christ, when we repent of our sins, and we accept Him as Savior, we decide to believe in Him, we confess Him as, as our Lord and Savior, just like Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says. What happens there? We experience conversion. And when you experience conversion, what, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit won't, won't come as a second experience. The, the Holy Spirit comes to you when you receive Christ. Because you are being sealed with the Holy Spirit. There is a royal seed that says you are God's property now. That you have been redeemed by Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is, this, is the sign of that. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So that we call positional holiness. Now, God will look at you and he won't see your trespasses and your, and your shame and guilt. He will see you holy through the blood of the Lamb. That's just grace. That's just amazing that Jesus paid the price for us. That God paid the price by giving his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross and pay the ransom for our freedom. Now, that position of holiness, to be in Christ also means now that now the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, He will work in us to be more holy, to be more like Him, right? To be more like our Father. I have kids, and I want my kids to look at me. First, I want to be a good example to them, a good model, right? But there is a great joy when a father sees his children following his example, right? How many of you have children, right? And you feel uh, full of... Joy and full of pride when you see your children, you know, acting and um, following your example. So for God, is the same thing. God expects us, His children, to follow His model, to follow His example. And that road is called sanctification. That road is called Christian formation, whatever you want to call it. And now it's that progressive holiness that we are experiencing. Where every day we want to be more like Him. Every day we want to honor Him more. Now there's a final stage to, to holiness. is the ultimate holiness. And that will happen with our resurrection. That's our hope. Our hope. The hope of the Christian is the resurrection of the body. The last things. When the new heaven and the new earth will come. And God will finish His work of, re, you know, of recreation. He's building His kingdom on earth. And, and at the consummation of the time, when the, 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 the risen Christ will come back with the, all the saints, all our loved ones that have departed from this world in Christ, they are right now seated with Christ. And we in the Spirit, we are also seated with, with them and with the Lord. That's amazing because the universal church is not only what we see here on earth or what God is doing in other parts of the world. We are also talking about a celestial or heavenly church. That even the apostle John got the opportunity to have a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. So that's what it means to be saint. That's what it means to be faithful and what it means to be in Christ verse 2 it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So grace and peace are two key, ele- two key elements in the book of Ephesians. You will find the word grace quoted in 1-6-2-8-3-8-4-7 and peace in 2-14-17-4-3-6-15. So Paul decides to start and finish even his epistle to the Ephesians with these two words. Grace and peace to you. And then he closes the, uh, the book in chapter 6, verse 23 and 24 by saying, Grace and peace to you. Why, why grace and peace are so important to us Christians? A, because if we don't lose sight of the grace of God, we will live lives full of praise and worship to Him. Because at the end of the day, we are in debt. He did it all. It's not about us. It's about Him who did it all who, who uh, chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us to be his sons. That's what we call election or adoption. And then peace, because Jesus ge- uh, gives us his peace, his shalom, his, his sense of tranquility, in the, even in the midst of su- sufferings and trials, just like Paul was you know, going through. In verse 2, it says grace to you and peace. And it's interesting, because that grace and that peace They come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God and the peace of Jesus. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it's interesting because Paul calls Jesus Lord, which was the Greek term that the the Jews used to refer to God in their Greek Bible. You know, whenever you will open in that time the Bible and you will have in your hands a Greek version of it, of the Old Testament. Whenever you would say in our Bibles, Jahweh, Jehovah, or God. In those days they used the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. And Paul is saying Jesus is equal to the God of the Old Testament. He is God. He is God, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. So Paul is exalting Jesus' divine nature by saying that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that Paul will also use in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, where where we see that beautiful hymn, Christological hymn, and Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Let's go now to verse 3, verse 3 to 14. And uh, it's 10.30, so I will keep you with me for about 10 minutes, 10 more minutes. Is that fine with you? Yeah? And then we will probably put a pause and we will continue next, next Sunday with this study on, on chapter 1 of Ephesians. So verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, or as the KJ, KJV puts it, in the heavenlies, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this long sentence, because this in the Greek is just one long sentence, it doesn't have periods, uh, commas, periods, or anything like that. It's just a long sentence. Paul shows that the tri- triune God initiated and accomplished cosmic reconciliation and redemption for the praise of His glory. So there's a couple of things that we will see from verse 3 to 14. A, um, God is doing all this for the praise of His glory. You will see that in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel exis- existed as a nation for the praise of God's glory. And the church exists for the praise of God's glory. Last Sunday, we spoke about doing things... In Jesus name or for Jesus name so it's a matter of who is receiving the glory after all you've done who is receiving the glory for what we do as a church it should be Jesus who is you know who is receiving glory for my ministry who is is receiving glory for what I'm doing as a as a believer it should be God it's everything about him everything about what God has decided to do in Christ Jesus everything is for his glory then we see also God's eternal purpose and will in verse 5, 9, and 11. We see God's blessings upon His children. In verse 3, He says that He, have, he has blessed us in Christ. That we have received all spiritual blessings. Also, this uh, long sentence, of, sentence that goes from verse 3 to 14 Paul's benediction. Speaks about predestination and election of the saints. And we will talk about that probably next Sunday. Also speaks about God's plan of, plan of salvation. It speaks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And the revelation of God's mystery in verses 7 to 10. So we can separate th- this long sentence in three parts. The first part is... Um, speaks about the blessings. So blessed and chosen by God to live blamelessly before Him. We have been blessed to live a life of holiness. That's the purpose of your spiritual blessings, to live a life of holiness. I've been blessed by God, so now I can live a life before Him as a royal priesthood, offering praise and glory to Him. Every day, at all times. Secondly, chosen by God for adoption and forgiven through grace. Verses 5 to 8. And and, and thirdly, God's plan for eternity revealed and His Spirit given as guarantee. Paul speaks about that in verses 13 and 14. The NIV commentary uh, proposes that verses 3 and 4 serves as the central thesis of the book. So in in that commentary you will read um, that the purpose of the book of Ephesians is to show us God's desire to bless us and choose us in Christ so that we might live holy and blameless lives before God. I think that it's okay. But I think to say that that's just the theme or the central idea of Ephesians is to miss out the the fact that Ephesians it's about the church the body not just Christians as individuals our our western mindset in our western mindset we come from an individ- individualistic angle when we come to the bible we take it as well God is speaking just to me we, or we, we talk about our life with, with Christ. We talk about our life with the Lord. And, but we forget that we have been called to belong not only to God, but to belong to His church. That before God, God is looking at His church as a whole, not as just individuals. Of course, as the Father, He will look at you and He knows about your struggles and what you're going through and He cares for you. But He also cares for all of us. He cares for the church. So if we believe that Ephesians is only about God's desire to bless us as individuals, then we will miss the point that Ephesians is actually about God deciding to bless His church so through His church He can manifest His kingdom to the world. That's uh, the, the spatial realized eschatology that, we'll, that, that we will find in the book of Ephesians. Also, we will miss the point that through Ephesians, God God is saying that that He wants to manifest through His church the manifold wisdom and the Christus victor, the victory of Christ over all. Over the devil, over sin, over guilt, over death. And that's a recurring theme in Paul's epistles. Paul speaks about that in the book of of Colossians, for example. The book of Hebrews speaks about that, that God uh, destroyed the authority that the enemy had over death. Paul spoke about that in the book of, of uh, Corinthians. In, in one of his letters, he says, where is death? Where is your authority? It, 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 it had been destroyed by the crucifixion of, the re- of, of Jesus and, and His resurrection. Even the Apostle John says that, for this, the Son of the the Son of God, Son of Man, manifested Himself in the world to destroy the works of the devil. So, Ephesians is it's about that victory, the victory of the cross, the victory of the recreation, the victory of the resurrection of the Lord. So, to me, the focus of the of that commentary and in the in the in the NIV. And the author, his last name is Snodgrass. His focus for, to me seems too individualistic and fails to address God's eternal purposes with his church, which is to unite all things in and through the Messiah in the consummation of the times and the recreation of all things. And on this, the resurrection and the new earth and the new heaven are key pieces uh, on, of this huge puzzle. Of this huge mystery. That I will invite you to come next Sunday. We will continue discussing now. The mystery of God revealed. To us in Christ. As it is written. In the book of Ephesians.